everybody leaves, I have a very important announcement for junior high. You're not going into this room because there's a new members class in there. So if you could go out the back doors, if you're a junior higher, and meet David there and go to your classroom, which is going to be in our offices, and everybody else, students, can go to their classrooms at this time. Well, Mother's Day is quickly coming, as you well know, seven days from now, and I'm happy to tell you, you can either sit or remain standing, because we are going to stand in a second for the reading of God's Word, but um, we're having six babies dedicated next week, which is pretty cool. So, something to look forward to. Not all of them are babies anymore, but um, they're still young. This morning's message comes from Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, but our scripture reading this morning, which is a nice introduction to the topic, is found in Psalm chapter 86 verses 1 through 7. This is Psalm 86, 1 through 7, and if you wouldn't mind standing in honor of the reading of God's Word. Psalm 86, 1 through 7. It's a Psalm of David. He writes, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may take your seats. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are thankful for the simple fact that even when we feel weak, when we struggle with doubt, cynicism, exhaustion, that we can trust that you will preserve the lives and the faith of your people that you have held us in your hand and you've told us that no one can pluck us out of it. And Father, we live in, in these days of, of changing uncertainty and, and we just trust in the simple fact that you're our sovereign king, that you love us, loved us enough to die for us, loved us enough to rise for us and one day give us a promise of a, an eternal hope with you in the new creation. I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us, your people, um, that you would revive hearts that are, um, have grown cold, that you would increase our sense of passion and hope for Jesus' his gospel and a glorious future, uh, that we would rest confidently in the truth that you are the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, and that you will bring all things to an appointed and wonderful end for your people. Help me, Lord, as I, I teach this, and uh, I pray again that Spirit's power would be um, evident in the hearts of those who hear, including my own heart, as I need to hear this as well. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Several weeks ago, my, my wife, Deanna, and I flew up to the state of Washington to celebrate her father's, I think it was his 83rd birthday. And uh, Washington, as you know, is, is one of those states where um, most of the time it's shrouded in rain and fog and clouds, at least the western part. But this particular vis visit, it was absolutely stunningly gorgeous. Um, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. Uh, the temperatures were perfect. 
I could look to the, let's see, I guess it would be northeast and see Mount Baker peeking its head out and look to the southeast and see Mount Rainier. It's just, I love it up there when it's clear. Not so much when it's not clear, but it was absolutely wonderful. Um, just taking it in and experiencing time with family uh, until something spoiled it for me. Anybody want to know what that is? My father-in-law says to me in the middle of this wonderful respite of, uh, you know, birthday celebration, he says to me, you know what? I think we need to take you down to my office and set you in the dentist chair and have a little look-see. No one, well, there's a few people who like the dentist. I think they're masochists, but, um, but so we went down to his, to his lair and I got into the chair and um, I'm always fearful he's going to find something. And of course he did. He found something. So I was in the chair for a while. Uh, you know, truth be told, I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful for him because if he didn't urge me all the time, I'd probably just let it go. There's a part of me that would prefer just to be blissfully ignorant about the condition of my, my teeth. But blissful ignorance, as you well know, is neither commendable nor wise, as you will end up with a root canal, which is far worse. I think a lot of us do that. That is, the things that are a little bit more difficult, um, we'd rather just kind of live in a blissful ignorance. If you have uh, skin issues, then you may prefer not to go to the dermatologist because you're afraid they might find something and burn it off or schedule you for a Mohs surgery. Never happened to me. Or if you're driving a, an older vehicle, a vintage vehicle, you might prefer to not take it to the mechanic to have a checkup done under the hood for fear that he might say, well, you have a bad radiator or you have a hole in your head gasket. Sometimes it's just easier to live in and with a sense of blissful ignorance. But that is, while preferable, certainly not commendable or wise, as it might leave you with a deadly melanoma or stranded on the highway. This morning, I want to do a hood pop of your life. I don't think we're supposed to do this every second of every day, but there's times in which we are supposed to, like, pop the hood on our spiritual life and go, how am I really doing with the Lord? It's easy for us to just assume that everything's good and kind of drift down the river of an enculturated church life, you know, adapting ourselves to the values and of our society or those that believe around us. But there's an important place for stopping and going, wait, how am I really doing with the Lord? How am I doing with the Lord? And I want you to do that this morning. For some reason, by the way, um, I am not able to control my slides, so I might have to just have Jackie advance them. Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus popped the hood on his churches, and there were some that had some problems that needed to be changed and addressed. No doubt that would have been a difficult, painful thing to actually have um, a critical, loving Lord say, this is wrong, and it needs to be changed. A lot of negative but in the introspection and in the contemplation of your own heart and your own life before the Lord or a church's life before the Lord, it's not just the absence of the negative that matters. It's also the presence of the positive. If I was to pop the hood or you were to pop the hood on the trunk of, of or hood of your, your marriage, it's not just the absence of the negative like, well, I don't cuss at my wife. 
I don't uh, gossip about my wife. I don't abuse my wife. It's, like, it's not just the negative, right? It's also the presence of the positive. But do you listen to her? Do you serve her? Do you spend time with her? Chapters 2 through 3 largely address the negatives of the church. But in chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, there is the presence of something that is one of the chief marks of health of a Christian life, individually or collectively. The presence of something healthy. And it comes kind of into clear view in these five verses. And I have found these um, very interesting and compelling. Last week we were in chapter 7. We have now looked at six seals being opened by Jesus, the lamb that was slain, chapter 6. Then there was this nice little interlude that explored the protection or preservation of God's people as well as the victory of God's people. And then we come to chapter 8 where the final seal is broken by Jesus or opened by Jesus. The final, the completed, the number of perfection, the number that it's done. And as we've argued, each of these series of seven come to an end by the time you get to the seventh. So we come to this climactic, I think, opening of this seventh seal, the end, the number of perfection and completion, and we see something unexpected. Now, what I want to do is I want to just kind of take this apart, and then I want to drill down on the central application uh, in a second. The first thing you read when it comes to this opening of the seventh seal is silence. Chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. <laughs> Think about this for a second. There has been this slow momentum that's being built over the first four seals, and then the fifth, and then the sixth, and the seventh, you'd expect a victory dance, maybe, uh, cheering from heaven, applause, maybe a big banner that says, hey, it's all finally over. But it's not. It's silent. Seems like a anticlimactic to have silence once this seventh seal is opened. But if you think about it, silence in many respects is louder than noise. Imagine for a moment, you are at a packed stadium watching your favorite team play baseball. Packed, noisy. Your team is up to bat, it's the bottom of the ninth. The bases, however, are loaded, but you're down by three. So your team is losing by three. The bases are loaded. Your last batter is up to, up, up to the plate. He steps forward, and the count is now three balls, two strikes. Bottom of the ninth. Unless he hits a foul, this could be the last pitch and the last swing of the game to determine win or lose bottom of the ninth, two outs, bases loaded, down by three, three balls, two strikes, one pitch, one swing. Those are moments when the, when the stadium is completely upside down in terms of noise. Everybody's screaming on their feet. Some people are banging on the chairs. It's just this massive roar as they await the windup. The pitcher winds up, and now everything goes into slow motion. He lets go of this ball, and the entire stadium is transfixed on a little three-inch white ball, watching it go from his hand across the plate. In a split second, 
of it leaving his hand and it passing by the plate. Silence. Everything goes dead for a split second. The anticipation is so intense that nobody speaks. You can hear a pin drop as the ball hurls towards home plate. And after that brief silence, crack deep into left field and over the wall, grand slam, and you jump to your feet. You're like, yes! Silence is loud, especially when it's right before the end of the game. We had a, a verdict that was read in a very important, well-known court case a couple weeks ago. Some of you were watching it real time. I watched it after the fact. But there still is this awkward, ominous pause and silence before the verdict is or was read. Let me ask you a question about which would make you feel more uncomfortable. A crowded room, you walk into it, and unexpectedly, everybody says, surprise! It's your birthday. Surprise! That's un uncomfortable, right? This is uncomfortable. I don't like surprise parties, but they're still fun, right? Imagine if you walked into that same room, and all of a sudden, all the noise went dead, and everybody looked at you. Which would you prefer, the surprise or the awkward silence? Give me surprise any day. If a room goes hushed, that's not a good sign. It's very ominous. So here you have, in the opening of the seventh seal, silence. Silence is loud. In the Old Testament, silence is often a precursor to the very end, to the end of a scene or the end of salvation, judgment, deliverance events. One particular example is Moses is leading his people, Israel, to the promised land, and they end up at the edge of the Red Sea. And you probably know the story. They're in a cul-de-sac, a catch-22. Uh, Pharaoh's armies are bearing down upon them. They're about to lose everything. It's the bottom of the ninth, and they're about to lose. And Moses looks at the people, and he says this. He says, the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. In other words, the game's about to be over. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be what? Silent. Silence. Moses takes his staff, his bat, so to speak, and he strikes the sea, and it splits in two. And God's people are delivered, and Pharaoh's armies are swallowed up. End of game. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 7 says this, before the day of the Lord, it says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. It's perfectly fitting. It's a fitting climactic moment. Of now the end has come, and guess what? Silence. Ominous silence. The end has come. Not only is this silence um, appropriate for the fact that the end has come, bottom of the ninth, and God is about to win the game, and he's going to put evil down, and then he's going to um, vindicate his people with resurrection life. But it's also a perfect context for the central action of what takes place during this seven-seal opening. That is prayer. Also, 
unexpected. If you continue on after this silence, which again is loud, John sees seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. This is the next series of seven that are now introduced. And I think this verse, verse two, is kind of parenthetical. It's like an interruption in the normal story. It's like, then there was silence. And oh, by the way, I also saw seven angels with seven trumpets. Now back to my story. And the reason for that, for those who care, is this kind of a literary link of the chain. It couples together the seven seals and also the seven trumpets, which are the next series of judgments where things will get darker. So it's parenthetical, verse 2. For some reason, my slides are demonic today. Verse 3, going back to what happens with the opening of the seventh seal. It says, And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire and from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings, lightning, and an earthquake." So after this little parenthesis of, by the way, here's seven angels, seven trumpets, which I'll come back to. He comes back to the story. What does he see? He sees something that you would see in the first century temple of, of Israel, but from a human priest. It's a little foreign to us because we don't experience this kind of thing of altars and incense and sacrifices and so forth. But here you have this altar of incense, which is before the, the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Only the scene, of course, that's painted here is not on earth, but it's in heaven. And this time it's not an earthly priest, but rather an angelic one who is taking this censer, which is like a bowl of sorts, golden bowl or pan, and it says much incense was placed into it, that aromatic incense that burns. In the Old Testament, that was often a, a, a sign or an expression of prayer. And he, 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 he puts it on the altar, and there's this mingling of of the prayers of the saints and also the incense rising up to God, rising up to the altar. It's the same altar, by the way, of chapter 4, which there's lightnings and strikes and thunders and thunder, and there's this peals of thunder and there's light that makes it seem so unapproachable. Here's this angelic one lifting up the prayers of God with, with incense. It's a powerful picture. And get this. While the prayers of God's people and the incense rise up, an idea is that God is pleased with the prayers of his people, like taking a, a big smell of something you love. As they rise up, something else comes down. As the prayers of God's people go up, something else comes down. The same censer with which the Prayers of all the saints is what it says. Not just some, but all the saints. It goes up. He takes that same censer, he fills it with fire, and he throws it on what? On the earth. There are different images that speak of the end of the world as we know it before it's recreated. One of the prevalent ones is fire. Second Peter chapter 3, destroyed by fire. As the prayers of the saints go up, Fire comes down. End of story. 
game over. You see? But think about this for a second. Just take this in. If you haven't paid attention, pay attention now. The final climactic seventh seal opened and history is brought to a close largely because of the prayers of God's people. You see? History comes to its appointed sovereign close because God's people pray. That just magnifies, increases the sense of the centrality of the prayers of God's people and how it brings and God uses it to work to bring history to a close. We know that the word is the means by which God accomplishes his work. He created the world by his word. He brought you to spiritual life by his word. He will recreate the world by his word. And yet he has ordained that the prayers of his people be one of the means by which he works and finishes things. In other words, again, we have this climactic seventh seal. And when it's cracked open and there's this silence, which is not only a sign of impending doom, but oftentimes the context of prayer, we see the prayers of God's people being answered. Prayer. Back to my opening. You pop the hood on your relationship with the Lord. One of the chief marks of health is a man or a woman or a church of prayer. It's figured into this final seal. That's a big, big deal. Which I think oftentimes we underestimate the importance of it. If this is included in the final end of history, E.M. Bounds, some of you have read his classic works on prayer, he wrote this. He said, prayer is a high privilege a royal prerogative, and manifold and eternal are the losses by failure to exercise it. Prayer is great, is the great universal force to advance God's, God's cause, the reverence which hallows God's name, the ability to do God's will, and the establishment of God's kingdom in the hearts of the children of men. It's pretty interesting to think that your prayers and my prayers, again, as all the saints, influence world history. Did you ever stop to think about that? What we underestimate figures into the end of the story. How is your prayer life? And mind you, I, I'm not going to, the, the net effect of this message is not for you to go, well, I should probably add 15 more minutes to my prayer life. Or, you know what, I need another checkbox so that I pray three more times during the day. That's, that's what Dan told me to do. We need to pray more. Well, we probably do, and you probably do need to perhaps modify your life so that there are more strategic, consistent times of prayer. I'm more interested in the heart behind prayer. What motivates people to pray? Or, conversely, what demotivate people not to pray? That was a double negative, sorry about that. Demotivate people to pray. So with the remaining time, let me just offer three lessons on prayer from this passage. We've seen that it's important. God brings history to a close in large measure because the prayers of the saints have come up before him. What motivates prayer? What's the heart behind it? 
Let me offer three. And I hope as, as we go through this, I want you to be thinking internally. Have the courage to face yourself and go, yeah, I'm, I'm not doing so well. Perhaps there is some change that's needed in this hood-popping kind of assessment of your spiritual life. Lesson number one. Prayer rises from an acute sense of need. An acute sense of need. The people that John was writing to, with the possible exception of the Laodicean Christians, were poor. They had no political power. They didn't even have the right to vote. Many of them were financially insignificant, nothing to offer. They lived in a pagan culture that was hostile to their faith. Everywhere they turned, it was difficult. Everything felt against them. The adversity was thick. And some of them paid for it with their own lives and constantly felt attacked. They were in need, and they knew it. They would hear this and go, yes, we need to pray. We need to recognize that when we get on our knees and we pray to the God who is on the throne, that he hears us, and he's more powerful than the politics of our time or the Caesar of our time or the pagan enemies of our time, we, we pray. I think that's how they would have heard it. I think that's the net effect of this. It's like, we know who hears us. You know who, when I think of uh, a model of prayer, I mean, you can talk about guys like George Mueller or other people who have made a name for praying. What I instantly think of when I think of someone who prays well, I think of a baby. <laughs> I got to hold one this morning, a little thinly. It's the first time I got to hold her. This is totally outside my notes, so if this derails, forgive me. <laughs> but it just kind of ties into my life right now. It's like I'm holding this little pink fluff. And instantly, I'm, I'm, I'm like, my mind goes back 21 years and holding my little pink fluff. You know, now she's graduating this Friday, so I'm feeling really old. But you know what babies do? Babies cry. They don't have language, at least not one that we can make into nouns and verbs and adverbs. They, they can't direct. They can't say, feed me. They can't even wave their arms in a consistent manner to say, hey, need some help over here. <laughs> I need someone to change my diaper. No, there's none of that. They simply instinctively, innately cry out. They at some level know they can't go to the fridge and get themselves a glass of milk. They innately know that I can't change myself. I'm completely and utterly helpless. And all they do is this pathetic little newborn cry from a place of discomfort, from a place of pain, or a place of desire. I am thirsty. I am hungry. And so they cry. They instinctively, innately know their need, and they cry out. Do you? Do I? Know instinctively and innately our need, each moment for God. See, something happens when we age and we mature. And in some ways it's good, in other ways it's, 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 it's bad. You know, we, we start to figure out how to use our hands and our feet, and pretty soon we can walk. Then we start using words, and we can talk, and we start being able to verbalize what we want. I don't want just that milk. I want Kool-Aid. We can verbalize to get what we want. 
We grow academically, we grow athletically, we grow vocationally. Pretty soon we're finding ourselves with more accrued stuff and climbing the, the vocational ladder. And it feels like we've become masters of our own world and story because we've learned how to make things happen. And there's a part of that that's good. That's part of maturity is learning how to use words and your hands and the feet to serve God and so forth. God has made us stewards of this planet. At the same time, we can easily forget that, you know what, you're just as vulnerable and helpless as a baby, even though you can do all of this stuff. Especially in our Americanized version of it, where we like to think that we can make things happen without stopping to realize that each, like right now, your heart is beating some faster than others. Every time it beats, guess what? It's a dependent beat because God willed it to be so. You are dependent 100% of the time, all the time. And I would add this, when it comes to spiritual things, eternal things, by your own strength and might, you don't have the strength to lift one blade of grass in eternity. You can't change one molecule or piece of dust in and of yourself. Everything we are, everything we accomplish is dependent upon who God is, and that's what we forget. And then we lose our sense of need. We have grown self-confident, self-reliant, and secretly proud. And so we don't pray anymore. We don't cry out like a simple baby. Instinctively. You know, the passage I read from Psalm 86, David said, Incline your ear to me, O Lord, for I am poor and needy. And it seems as if God placed David oftentimes in a place of lack, out running from his enemies, so he'd be in a place of dependence. He, he really was at his best when things were taken away, not when things were given to him. So that he could learn the important spiritual lesson that we are, in fact, poor in spirit and everything we do is dependent. If there's a lack of compulsion to pray, church, and I say this as your brother, as someone who's in the same boat as you are, it's because we've forgotten how needy we are and we have grown proud. So one of the things we have to nurture if we're going to be the kind of prayer saints that are praying from the heart is nurturing each morning and each day. It's like, listen, I am not all that in a bag of chips. I, I can accomplish absolutely nothing without Jesus. And in the nurturing of that humility of heart that's real, you'll find yourself calling out to him through your day, asking for his help, asking for forgiveness when you fail, asking for more strength to tell the truth, asking more, for more strength to be courageous, to maybe make a confrontation that you know needs to happen, to know that you're needy. First spiritual lesson, correct? First words out of Jesus' mouth in terms of a sermon in the Gospel of Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because they pray. <laughs> Two, second, and it's connected to it, we have to realize our sense of need, but also we have to recognize 
now who we are in Christ, a special place. Prayer rises from who we are as now. Those who have come to faith in Jesus have been washed by the blood of Jesus, who we are. Where do you get that in the text, Dan? Well, it's implied. They're called saints. And saints in the New Testament, I've said this before, I'll say it again, is not for like a a class of super Christians. A saint in the New Testament is anybody who's had their life washed by the blood of Jesus who've come to faith. The question is, how how could any broken or imperfect person like me or like you, how could you possibly be holy? How could you be a saint? And saint, by the way, just just a, a word for holy ones. That's literally translated from the Greek. Holy ones. How could we possibly be holy? I know myself. I'm not holy. (laughs) It's because your holiness doesn't come from you. It didn't come from me. It came from the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, the perfect for the imperfect. And only because the lamb that was slain gave his life can we in any way, shape, or form be called saints. And we are. And our Father wants us to relate to him that way. Yes, you can't do anything in and of yourself, but now that you are in Christ, he is your father, and you are his son or daughter. And ought to have the confidence that a son or daughter has to come to her father and say, you know, I have need. I'm hurting. I need relief. I need strength. I need hope. I need joy. I need healing. Isn't that what daughters do instinctively to their fathers. My children have no problem asking for stuff. My daughter is a little more indirect when she asks for stuff. She's like, Dad, I'd love to come home, but I don't have any gas in my tank, and I don't have any money in my checking account. You know what that translates to? It's, that translates to, hey, pops, why don't you just buy me some cash so I can come home? And I'm happy to do it. Why? Because she's my daughter, and I am her father. She doesn't ask other fathers to do that. Why? Because they're not her father. I am, and she's confident in that relationship. In the same way, the Lord wants us to come confidently before him and be honest and express our need to him, knowing and trusting that we are seen and responded to as a daughter or a son. So the prayers of the saints in this passage aren't just prayers of saints. They're the prayers of God's children, sons and daughters. And here in the seventh seal, God once for all answers their prayer. For nearly 2,000 years, the church has been praying, Lord, come quickly. Lord, come quickly. Lord, come quickly. Lord, come quickly. Establish justice and righteousness on the earth. And when it comes... He's going to say, see, I answered your prayers as your father. So nurture that sense of, listen, you're a believer. If you're a believer, you're a child of God. You're a son. You're a daughter. He is your father. That's a possessive pronoun. Your father. You are his child. Third and finally, prayer rises um, from a deep conviction should be a from there, about who God is, about who he is. 
We have already been introduced in the first seven chapters of Revelation of who our God is, the Pantocrator, the, the Almighty, the one who sends the lamb that is slain to purchase people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We know that he is a God of steadfast love, and in this passage, he is responsive. We believe because it teaches it in the Bible that God is entirely sovereign. Everything that happens on planet Earth, including the dropping of a sparrow, takes place by his will. So he has ordained all things. At the same time, if we allow that to undermine our belief that God responds, then we have wrecked the tension in the Bible and we will go through the motion of prayer, not real prayer. What is that? famous Awana verse that we memorize as kids. The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. It accomplishes. You believe that? It does. Not always in your own time, but it does. And to believe he hears you. And to be willing to wait for it and continue to pray for it. If one of my children at the age of five said to me, Dad, can I drive the car? Five, drive the car. You might be tempted to go, no. I probably would have said that. I'm not used this for a message. But actually a more adequate answer is yes. Five-year-old son, you can drive the car. Not yet. Not now. The time's coming when you will, because I care about you too much to answer in your time. I love what Tim Keller writes in his magnificent little book on prayer. He wrote, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knew. <laughs> he sees it all. He knows what will hurt you, what will harm you. So at the end of the day, we trust him as our father. And David was so confident that God would answer him. The verse 7 of chapter 86 of Psalm. In the day of my trouble, I call on you for you answer me. You answer me. So back to the question, and this is meant as a, a loving criticism, if it is a criticism to all of us. You kind of open up your Christian life before you. What part does prayer play in your life? And does it come from a place of, I am in need, I am a child of God, and I know he abounds in steadfast love and he is a response of God? How well are you doing? How well am I doing? How well are we doing? Here in this final seal what brings history to a close are the prayers of the saints. Each morning, we have to nurture the sense of personal need, personal belonging and identity that we belong to God and remember who he is. Don't leave here just going, okay, that's good. Got to pray more. Just let this kind of percolate in your heart for a while. Think about it through the week. Lord, how am I doing? Because you know what? He tells us these things. He opens the hood so that we can look so that he can heal us. And I pray in these times of uncertainty, one of the things that will come out of it is a deeper commitment 
to pray from the heart to our God. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you are, in fact, responsive, um, that you love us, you know us, you know what's best for us from beginning to end. Humble us, allow us to see ourselves as you see us, allow us to, to walk by faith in the finished work of the cross, and to know that you as our Father love us. Graciously and enormously, in Christ's name I pray, amen.